On October 10th, 2017, the U.S. men's national soccer team was feeling good. They were finishing the final stage of World Cup qualification, a home-and-away round-robin between the six best teams in North America, Central America, and the Caribbean. The U.S. had just started this round-robin, called the Hex, you know, six teams, hexagonal, the Hex, with a couple of disappointing losses. Panic ensued. The coach was fired. A new coach, who had previously coached the national team, was brought back in. And then, things got better. The U.S. started getting wins and draws, and they clawed their way back into contention. The biggest hurdle between them and qualification was a match against a talented Panamanian side in Orlando. And things couldn't have gone better. The U.S. won 4-0, looking like the regional powerhouse everyone expected them to be. Because of that win, the U.S. only needed to win or tie against Trinidad and Tobago, the worst team in the hex. Even if they managed to lose, they would still qualify, as long as Mexico and Costa Rica, the two best teams in the group, didn't both lose their final matches. The U.S. and the other two favorites had to all lose on October 10th for the U.S. to fail to qualify. So yeah, the U.S. men's national team and its supporters, like me, were feeling pretty good. Everything had to go wrong for the U.S. to fail. And then, everything went wrong. The pitch was wet, the crowd was hostile, and the U.S. never looked like a world-class team. One after another, the results came in. Mexico lost. Costa Rica lost. When the game ended, Trinidad and Tobago had beaten the U.S. 2-1. The U.S. was not going to the World Cup in Russia in 2018. Friends and family, and friends and family of friends and family, welcome to the Desai Invitational Podcast, the official sonic companion to the Desai Invitational. The U.S.'s 2018 World Cup story died that rainy day in October. For the next few weeks, we're going to look at six teams whose unlikely World Cup dreams are still alive. Eight years ago, I was a bored man, working in Chicago after a stint in the Peace Corps in Uganda. I loved soccer and wanted to get my friends and my family interested in the 2010 tournament, even though most of them didn't care about soccer. I wanted to find a fan competition that would get them involved, like how running a fantasy football team or filling out a March Madness bracket keeps people engaged in those sports. My motivation was selfish. I wanted to have people to talk to about the hours of sport I was about to watch. And when I couldn't find a competition to my liking, I made my own. That's the Decide Invitational. Of course, now I have to entice people to be interested in the fake competition that I created in order to entice people to be interested in the real competition that I love, so I decided this year to do this podcast. It's easy to care when the big teams play each other, as Portugal and Spain will on Friday, but when Poland plays Senegal, do you really care enough to watch? For each episode, I've asked a friend or family member to do a little research into one competing team that isn't among the blue bloods of world soccer. First up, the one team of the six that actually has a plausible shot at lifting the World Cup when the tournament ends in the middle of July. They aren't among the Brazilians, Germans, Argentinians, or Spaniards in terms of pedigree, but they might be soon. We're going to talk about Belgium. And to talk about Belgium, we're going to talk to my friend Matt. Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Rishi. I'm uh, glad to be here. Matt and I were assigned at random to be roommates during our freshman year in college. I once saw him buy a box of 50 cookies, eat 30 of them, 
then howl in pain when he got a stomach ache while we were watching a movie. As soon as he felt better, he finished the box and got another stomach ache, all before the movie was over. He has this amazing infectious laugh that builds to a high-pitched crescendo. <laughs> in the 15 years since, he got a law degree and started a business with his father and brother that gives professional training to public sector workers. He no longer eats cookies by the box. Now, Matt, when you and I were in college, when we were roommates, uh, we used to watch SportsCenter almost every night. We were big fans of sports in general. Uh, would you say you still consider yourself to be a sports fan? I am. I would say because I have a uh, two-and-a-half-year-old and a 10-month-old, I've never been a worse sports fan in my entire life. And guys that I know that I'm really good friends with and I've kept up with that have always been sort of more musically inclined, and they knew uh, bands that I didn't know, and I – new stats and, you know, who was, you know, college basketball and uh, NFL, college football and baseball. Like I knew what was going on. And uh, now like the March Madness thing came around and I felt like I was completely from a different planet. I didn't know who was good. I had no idea. Uh, I watched two Duke basketball games, which, you know, is a sad state of affairs. But but, but between the the boys and uh, work and stuff, I, I've kind of slipped back. I still love sports, and I'm sure that I'll come back around when this whole raising children thing, which is very time-consuming, uh, when this finally wraps up. And it's been a couple years now. But um, So I do love sports. I'd say lately um, I've been a pretty bad sports fan uh, because something's had to give. But, uh, but, yeah, I'm a big sports fan. Matt grew up in a sports family, but not a soccer family. So my father was a Division One college basketball player. So were two of my uncles. They played D1 ball. So basketball was, was around quite a bit um, as a kid. So I was born in Raleigh, and then I moved to Asheville when I was two. I moved to Lumberton when I was six. The middle of North Carolina in the early 90s was not soccer country. Yeah, we were the swamp an hour and 15 minutes south of Tobacco Road, and basketball Basketball was probably uh, hands down king. But times were changing. And just like other small towns across America, soccer was starting to pick up steam, at least amongst toddlers. I think Lumberton uh, was probably pretty typical in terms of sort of, it probably wasn't different from Cross Lanes in terms of soccer. That's my hometown, Cross Lanes, West Virginia. Around the time, I think I'm about a year older than you, but, but around the time that we were getting into elementary and middle school, a lot of kids were into soccer and it was really gaining in popularity. And that was the case in, in Lumberton. I remember there was a fall baseball league and there was somebody in charge of it. And they were like, well, uh, if people want to play soccer instead of fall baseball, that's their problem. And then <laughs> everyone signed up for soccer and they're like, well, OK, we'll, we'll work with them. We, we can we can ch change the schedule. I remember that very distinctly. Being like, wow, that was a pretty quick, pretty quick 180. OK, all right. Matt's soccer career was short but exciting. I only played one year of soccer. I played in eighth grade, and I played it to get in shape to make my junior high basketball team. You know, I think we had for 13 spots on the junior high team, we had 95, or I think I think we might have broke 100. I think we had 100 kids go out for the, the seventh, eighth grade basketball teams. I didn't know any of the rules going in. Very first game, I, uh, I got a yellow card, I think, because I kicked the goalie because he was holding the ball. And then he put it down, and I was like, wrong move, fool. And I, I thought that he was in the box, but no one had told me any of this. All I, all I had done was just we'd done, we'd done running. we just run for three weeks. We just had <laughs> this, this, this English guy who randomly moved to Lumberton, and he was just like, just run, just run, go, just run for three weeks. We're all fat, run. And we just ran for three weeks in this rec league thing. And then the first game started, and I'm sure we'd kick some soccer balls around, but no one had told me 
the basic rules. So then when the goalie put the ball down, <laughs> I just sort of jumped up. And I don't know why I did this. I didn't even make contact with the ball, come to think of it. I kicked it. And it wasn't intentional. I think I just got really excited. And I thought I'm going to score a goal. And it was a kid that like knew a lot about soccer and was like, oh, Manchester United. And there, you know, and I'm like, whatever, that sounds made up. I don't think that's a thing. And uh, there wasn't that much uh, EPL on. Um, uh, that much English, you know, Premier League on yet in, uh, in 97, 98, whatever it was. And so, yeah, I just got really pumped up to show this kid that uh, I'd, I'd fooled him and he had made a, a horrible error. And I, I, I kicked him a little bit, didn't hurt him or anything, but uh, he was pretty upset. So, yeah, I wasn't a great soccer player that year. Back to Belgium, the national team that Matt's going to talk about on this podcast. And the reason I picked Belgium was because I thought, oh, I'll spend some time and I'll learn about Belgium. That didn't work out. But I thought, like, <laughs> I'll pick Belgium because every other country on the list, I'm like, I at least stupidly think that I know something about that country. Like, <laughs> I, I know, like, Egypt, just like pyramids, pyramids. There's some biblical stuff on it, you know. Like, I, I, I have an idea of Egypt. And then you get to Belgium. It's just like, ah. Belgium. Like, I really don't know uh, much about them. Well, let me ask you, Matt. Is there, does, does Belgium, do they have a nickname? Is there a... Yes, they are the Red Devils. The Red which, Devils. Uh, the Red Devils, which I feel like is an old-timey drug. I didn't get a chance. <laughs> now that I think about, like, Red Devils, maybe you can add that to your commentary. But I think it used to just be like, ah, I'm all hopped up on Red Devils and listening to jazz music. Like, I feel like that's something from... Like an old time, I feel like Red Devil is an old old timey nickname for some type of of illegal uh, illegal substance, but uh, but I, I could be wrong. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> <That's, right. laughs> now, listeners, I'm obligated to tell you that in fact the Red Devils have nothing to do with the drug. Belgium wears a red jersey and are given the nickname by a journalist after they trounced their Dutch rivals 5 nothing in April of 1906. Belgium soccer history starts out strong. They were one of the founding members of FIFA, the international organization that governs world soccer, and they were a top team in the 20s and 30s. But then the rest of the world kept getting better, and Belgium didn't. Yeah, so I don't know what the system was back then, if, if, if punctuality got you points or something. So I don't, I don't really know, you know, pre-World War II, but, but post-World War II, they, they were struggling. They weren't really a power. Um, they had a good year in 86. And then um, really get the impression, as you sort of read up a little bit, that it, it sort of got a little bit embarrassing for them. Their, their fan base was pretty, uh, pretty, pretty downtrodden about things until uh, just the last World Cup. Uh, when they made it to the quarterfinals with the young team. And there seems to be, uh, you know, they're, they're first seeded in their group this year. Seems to be a sense that they've got a generation of, uh, of great talent that's come up, but seems to be, uh, seems to be unusual in the history of their, of their soccer, uh, national soccer team. The golden generation. It's the phrase everyone uses when they talk about this Belgium team. They have some of the most talented attacking players in the world, and they're one of the dark horse favorites to win the World Cup. Was it just generational luck that a group of superstars were all born in Belgium at roughly the same time? Or was there something more to it? Like Matt said, after a deep run in the 1986 World Cup, Belgium returned to its place as a middling national team. From 1986 to 2014, Belgium never made it past the first round of the World Cup knockout stage. 
During that same time, they only qualified for the European Championship, more commonly called the Euros, once. In 2001, Michel Sablon was appointed the technical director of Belgian soccer, and he was tired of the mediocrity. Sablon saw two major flaws in Belgian soccer. First, the team was playing a rigid 4-4-2 formation. Now, this isn't a podcast about soccer tactics, so I'm not going to get into details, but in short, a strict 4-4-2 was the default formation in soccer for decades. It means there were four defenders, four midfielders, and two attackers. Four in the back, four in the middle, two in the front. 4-4-2. In the early aughts, though, the formation was starting to go out of style among club teams in Europe in favor of more dynamic styles of play. But a lot of national teams, including Belgium, stuck with the old tried-and-true 4-4-2 because everyone knew how to play in the system. National teams, unlike club teams, only have a few weeks a year to work their players, so it's really hard for a manager to implement big tactical changes, even if they make soccer sense, because they just aren't going to have time to get their players on board. Kind of how no one runs the complicated triangle offense in a pickup basketball game, people were hesitant to run anything but the 4-4-2 on a national team. Sablon asked Belgian academics who specialized in movement control and neuroplasticity, which apparently means the ability for a brain to learn things, to analyze hundreds of hours of game footage and come up with a way forward. Their answer, the 4-3-3. This might not sound like a big change, but it was. If I had the budget to pay licensing for public interviews, this is where I would have inserted a clip of Sablon talking about why the 4-3-3 was such a big change. Unfortunately, unlike the fat cats at NPR, I do not have a budget. Instead, I'll overlay what he might have said over an open license clip of a Belgian man talking about something completely different. Maybe it's a small move, but the 4-3-3 asks more from players. It forces defenders to attack and forces attackers to defend. It says, we are going to beat you with our skill, not our discipline. Again, that was what Michael Sablon might have said had we been able to interview him. It was not a Belgian man talking about how nice he found aquariums during his recent Portuguese vacation. Sablon went to every coach and administrator in Belgian soccer and said, Look, we're done with the 4-4-2 now, and all Belgium teams, from toddlers to the national team, are going to start playing the 4-3-3. This also helped with the second problem Sablon had identified, a focus among youth teams on winning at the cost of player development. This seems counterintuitive. Obviously, the point of playing any sport is to win your games. Sablon said, no, 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 you're all misguided. The point of youth sports is not to win games immediately, it's to improve individual players. Sablon abolished league tables for kids under the age of 9. He decided that players don't get enough time on the ball when they play a full game of 11 players against 11. Instead, youth players were to play 7-on-7 games until they were older, then 9-on-9 games on small fields. Soon afterwards, something strange happened. When they stopped caring about winning, the youth team started to win. Sablon said, We found that our teams, even though it wasn't our target to be there, went from being ranked in the 20s to the top 10 in the 17s and the under-19s. In 2014, Belgium made the finals of the World Cup. This year, they want to lift the cup, and they just might do it. They've built a national system that has made them a new world power in soccer. Or have they? Tell me, do you know who is who is like the talisman of like who's the greatest player in the history of the Netherlands? Do you know? 
So I had a hard time coming up with that. So it looks like uh, whoever does well this time. Uh, (laughs) Because, as I said, I look back and and there's not... uh, there, you know, as I'm looking on the Wikipedia page, and then as I'm looking through, you know, the news articles and Sky Sports and Daily Mail, and they're all doing sort of their rundowns of the team. Um, I just feel like they weren't saying like not, not since the days of fill in the blank or you know, um, they they said, well, could this guy be the next? They're just kind of like, could he be great? That'd be cool. Like that seems to be the whole, the whole commentary. There doesn't seem to be anyone that there. There's certainly no 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 Pele. There's there's no uh, you know. There's no figure in their history that they're just like, this is this is the model. The core of this team, led by Eden Hazard and Kevin De Bruyne, is amazing. But if you look a little younger, there aren't as many players on the horizon. Did Belgium create a world-beating system, or did they just get lucky with this generation? Here is a rapping Belgian woman who, if I had asked her, might have said this about the Belgian team. We all hope that we've created a system that will generate more Kevin De Bruyne's, more Eden Hazard's, more Moussa Dembele's, but we don't know for sure. The reforms may have had nothing to do with their current success, so we have to savor this team while we still can. Again, that is what the rapping Belgian woman might have said if we'd had the budget to talk to her. So, are the Belgians here to stay among the world soccer powerhouses? That's a question we'll have to ask in the 22 World Cup in Qatar. Until then, we'll just have to enjoy the golden generation. Thanks for listening. I hope you'll join us next time when we talk about the South American surprise, Peru.